I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone, and I hope you can all hear me as the recording gets underway for tonight's discussion on David Graeber's brilliant book about debt. My name's Gillian Tett. I'm a journalist with the Financial Times, and I owe personally a huge debt to David Graeber, no pun intended, um, partly because as a financial journalist, his wonderful book, which came out just after the financial crisis, really changed the way that I looked at the financial crisis and had a big influence on me and many others. But also because I was also I'm, am also an anthropologist by training. And there was a time many years ago when people would tell me, ask me who were famous anthropologists. And I'd end up saying people like Margaret Mead, who lived almost a century ago. And then we had David Graeber who not only made an incredible impact on the academic world, but also had a huge impact on discussions about politics at a particularly critical moment. It's absolutely tragic he couldn't be with us here today to join in this discussion, particularly at this moment in history when so much is now up for grabs in terms of how we talk about and imagine the political economy and the financial system. We could really benefit from his insight in so many ways. But we have a fantastic group of people to talk about his legacy, his contribution to debate at this important political moment. Um, I won't waste a lot of time introducing them. Yanis Varoufakis, who is former Greek finance minister and a towering intellect and activist on the European stage and beyond, um, who, of course, now is a Greek parliamentarian. Owen Jones, who is a well-known columnist who has done a lot to put ideas of the sort that David was championing into the British political discussion and mainstream. And Grace Blakely, who is another British columnist, again, who has had a big impact on the Labour Party and the left about how we discuss these very important political economy questions. And someone who actually knew David Graeber as well, and also knew Nika Dubrovsky, David's wife, who is with us today to join the discussion and is actually going to start this discussion by saying a few words, first of all, to frame the debate. So over to you, Nika, and then we'll have a discussion between us about the contribution that David made and why his ideas are so incredibly relevant today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is an important day for David, who should be here to celebrate it. Uh, he was... Uh, Looking forward to this day, proud of his book and dreaming that it would make the world a better place. First of all, 5,000 years of that was a project to change the world uh, by showing people the hidden power structures that control our society. And the original idea of making that the center of the conversation belonged uh, to Michael Hudson an economist and historian of the ancient Middle East and David's friend, that abolition is a crucial concept developed by Michael Hudson, Steve Keane, David, David Graeber, and other activists, economists, and anthropologists in order to disrupt the institutionalized hierarchy in our society. I'm 
absolutely sure that we all want David to continue to be a danger to the current regime instead of becoming a celebrating mainstream after his death. So that's why I was intrigued by uh, Thomas Piketty's introduction to the new edition of Death. It is a very favorable introduction, but I also know that David disagreed with Piketty about the role of death in shaping the very power structures that control us all. David compared Piketty's proposal to stop the alarming growth of inequality with using a vacuum cleaner to reduce the force of an approaching hurricane. So personally, I would be incredibly interested to hear a debate uh, on the origin meaning of death and uh, its relationship to the structural violence and emergent slavery. So last year, instead of funeral for David, we organized 250 carnivals uh, run by David's friends worldwide, from Tokyo to St. Petersburg, from London to New York, from Paris to Rojava. And this September, we are going to celebrate David's life in the street of Madrid. Uh, and I would like to take this opportunity to invite all David's friends and comrades, uh, and specifically Thomas Piketty, to participate in the debate about what is death uh, and to attend one year anniversary to celebrate David's life, hosted by David Graeber's Foundation and Museum of Care. Thank you very much indeed, Nika. And I should say that one thing that's very fitting about this evening's discussion is that it's only the evening for the people in Britain. We have people watching from all over the world where it's currently morning, nighttime, et cetera, et cetera. And that really is a testament to his incredible contribution and how it touched people from around the world, because debt is something which has not only been with us for 5,000 years, but is global, universal and is implicated in power structures all around the world. So I'd like to start by asking perhaps Yanis, first of all, um, speaking as someone who actually has a proper day job rather than just writing, which is what the other three of us do, um, but is actually trying to run things as well, has been. How did David's comments or thoughts about debt and its implications in the power structures um, influence you when you were grappling with the very immediate challenges of the Eurozone debt crisis? And how do you assess his legacy? Um, I can see a cat's coming to join us as well from the Owen side. Um, how do you, face it, Janus, you can't compete with the cat. How do you see his influence and why was he so influential? Gillian, let me give you an example. Um, in 2015, when I was uh, in the finance ministry of the most bankrupt European country, maybe the most bankrupt country, <laughs> negotiating with the, the Troika of creditors, as you know well, I remember uh, Amartya Sen, the great Indian-British economist, saying to me, you know what your problem with you, Yanis, is? The problem you're facing? You have, your, your tragedy, and that's the word he used is that you're negotiating with creditors who don't, do not really want their money back. And to understand what Amartya Sen meant, you had to have read that, David Graeber's book, because that was the whole point. You know, the, the worst thing that could have happened to our creditors at that very moment uh, in 2015, <laughs> just, you know, just imagine for a moment that we were to discover hidden somewhere a treasure here in Greece, you know, some, some huge diamond under, underground, and we were to dig it up and send it to Amsterdam, have it all uh, done up properly, and sell it for 350 billion euros and repay our debt. That would be a catastrophe for our creditors. They didn't care about getting their money back because, to begin with, it's not, it wasn't their money. It was the money of the taxpayers. For them, the permanent indebtedness and bankruptcy of Greece was a means by which to ensure that Greek governments did as they were told. So you will remember that in debt and also in the podcast, which is a very good podcast by the BBC Radio 4 people, um, David tells a story of the opening sequence, one of the opening scenes in The Godfather, in which during the um, that famous scene of, of the wedding of the Godfather's daughter, uh, one of the uh, people that he patronizes comes to him and offers him money, offers the Godfather money. Um, to, to, to 
either murder or, um, you know, see to it that uh, the man who raped his daughter um, was uh, severely <laughs> damaged. And the godfather was very incensed. He said, I don't want money. I want you to be in my debt because debt is power. And so on the one hand, there is this, which is extremely useful when you're negotiating with creditors who don't want their money back because they won't have power over you. Uh, but may also add the academic aspect of it, which is hugely significant. In a sense, uh, as you know, Gillian, monetary economics has a creation myth. And the creation myth is that humans uh, bartered with one another before money came into being. This is Adam Smith's famous expression to track barter and exchange, that this is part of human nature, uh, which it is not. And David has demonstrated that very, very well, that barter did not beget money. Instead, people started trading, exchanging, having obligations. Because these obligations become debt, they are debt obligations. These debt obligations start become tradable, and those tradable debt obligations <laughs> sounds like a CDO, but it's not that what I meant. What I meant, these tradable debt obligations become money, and that is utterly intertwined with the authority of the government, of the lord, of the baron, of the uh, of the the witch, the witch doctor, whoever happens to be in the tribe. This capacity of David Graeber to connect the history of everything, the history of everything social and human with, you know, moments of truth for the finance minister of a bankrupt country with, you know, academic monetary economics. You know, it's, it's a unique book. I don't know of any other book that has managed to appeal at so many different levels uh, and to contribute to the capacity of so many different classes of people to understand and act upon our world. Well, that is very, very powerful. Um, so that's a macro picture in terms of looking at countries as a whole. Owen, you've been looking a lot more at what sort of this means for communities in the UK and, you know, the broader question about the working class and the power structures in relation to that. How has David's work been influential in terms of your political um campaigns, manifesto, arguments? Well, firstly, big honour to be here to, to remember David. And, and I should also say, I can see I'm, I've appeared as Mr. Owen P. Jones. And that, for those who think that's just bizarre and explicable, I realised also, Phil, when you're typing in your debit card details, it comes up with your name on your card and it's entered <laughs> that for there. That's why, just to explain, in case people <laughs> thought I'd become some bizarre egomaniac. Everywhere. <laughs> Exactly, it's my it's, it's my it's my credit card. Yeah, indeed, debt, 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 debt. Um, I I think for me, I mean, class. What what was so you know in terms of my interest, particularly in in class and class antagonism. I mean, David obviously had this key role in the Occupy movement and helped. It was instrumental in the popularization of "We Are the Ninety Nine Percent." And I think what was so important about that was for those a younger generation who were raised in the age of the end of history. There is no alternative where class conflict was seen to be something which was buried along with the, you know, the, the, or, or was, was in the graveyard of statues of Marx and Lenin in, in the old Soviet bloc, that uh, the defeats of the labor movement in, in Britain and elsewhere meant to speak about class meant, you know, go back to the 1960s, you dinosaur kind of thing. He reconceptualized class and helped to, you know, popularize class in a way people could understand and relate. There was always an argument about, you know, how accurate is the 99%? Lots of privileged layers are in the 99%, you could argue. And equally, such as the concentration of wealth and power that zip, the zip top 0.01%, uh, you know, there's even more of a concentration of wealth and power there. But what it did is popularize a sense of not just how wealth and power is concentrated, but how it's accompanied by the machine of the state to set to protect it. And for those who are involved in many of the protest movements since uh, 2011, Occupy onwards, who came face to face with being kettled and police batons, that, that very much, I think, captured their imagination. You know, debt as well, obviously, looms so large in this era for a whole new generation. But in terms of understanding class, I mean, we go back to the 1970s, the liberalization of cheap credit was used to compensate for the, for the defeats, the routes of the trade union movement. 
um, which produce stagnating living standards. It's very striking that the real average male wage in the US at the start of 1973 uh, was higher than it was uh, by the middle of 2018. Uh, that, well, um, and that was obviously, you know, if we look at here in Britain, uh, the longest fall in wages we've suffered over the last uh, decade since the defeat of Napoleon, um, before the financial crash, for the top, for the bottom half of British society, wages were stagnating, and for the bottom third, they were actually declining. That was under a Labour government before the financial crash. So personal debt, you know, the, the personal debt was used uh, conveniently to, and there's care to justify. That's okay. Care, care, that, that's that's care named after care Hardy. I, I always need to clarify that now. Um, so I think that that the the, the personal indebtedness, uh, and the way it was used to uh, compensate for the defeats of the trade union movement, the stagnating living standards, because they were so much intertwined. For a new generation, obviously debt looms so large, not least because you are punished with debt for daring to dream for a university education from which all of society benefits. For an English student, the average debt now is £40,000 in the United States, over £30,000, uh, $30,000, sorry, uh, where you often get these younger workers who are, have student debt and then end up in precarious jobs, zero-hour contracts and so on, and end, end up in further personal debt. And we, we know the impact on people's everyday lives in British society. 86%, according to one poll in Britain, said debt impacted their mental health. You know, those saddled with a bad credit rating. And I think this is what's so interesting about David Graeber reclaiming freedom from neoliberalism, which was used to popularize neoliberalism, the idea the individual is freed from the state and the dead weight of collectivism. Uh, you know, if you're saddled with a bad credit rating, people found their freedom restricted, difficult to find a place to live because they're rejected by private landlords, higher interest rates on credit cards and loans, higher insurance premiums. You can even be denied work. So I think what for me was so in interesting is both how, you know, looking at the liberalization of debt and how that collided with the defeat suffered by the trade union movements and the consequent decline or stagnation living standards and how debt intersected, about how a younger generation were indebted because of those half who went to university or the precarious work. That, I think, you can't understand uh, modern class formation under neoliberalism uh, without that focus on debt. And it's so much part of the lived experience of a younger generation who were very inspired by David Graeber. Right. Well, that's fascinating. And it brings me very well towards Grace, because, Grace, I think you're talking to us from Hay, aren't you? Presumably where you're at the Literary Festival, probably yeah. to promote your, your own book recently, which came out last autumn, about the corona crash and how this is going to toss up many of these issues into centre stage all over again. So how do you see the current situation post-pandemic playing into these arguments that David Graeber put out um, about debt and power structures? I think that David not being here during this particular moment in time is such a loss to our movement um, because so many of the things that he was constantly highlighting um, are now coming to the fore. And, you know, on kind of relatively superficial terms, you can think about the changing nature of work and how much he wrote about that. You can think about debt and, uh, you know, all the uh, the way in which the kind of the narratives of austerity and the morality of debt um, blips away at moments of capitalist crisis only to be, um, you know, immediately rebuilt uh, in the in the aftermath of those crises. Um, but for me, I think the thing that David would be really um, emphasizing at the moment is, again, and, you know, I think I've kind of taken a lot of the work that I'm doing on this at the moment from David, is this idea that actually, you know, we are moving into an era of really authoritarian capitalism um, and authoritarian liberalism. Um, and David would consistently have told us, contrary to the kind of laborist tendencies that he would have uh, grated up against and pushed up against throughout most of his uh, time organizing in the Labour Party, that, you know, Keynesianism isn't liberation from capitalism. Um, nationalization isn't even liberation from capitalism. Um, and he was really invested in thinking about what liberation actually meant. Uh, in, you know, focusing on what it means to, as he put it, act as though we are already free. Um, and, you know, I think for me, that was that was everything about David. That was everything about him as a man, everything about his work. And I don't think we can really separate those two things out. He wasn't just this towering intellectual figure. I think he was someone 
And this is always what comes back to me when I think about David. He was someone who was out there trying to teach us all what it means to be free and how we all as individuals learn how to be free. Um, If I think about David's work and the thread that kind of runs through everything that he's done, um, it it reminds me of that that, um, Rousseau quote, which is the opening of the social contract. Man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. David believed both of those things very, very deeply, that we are free, that we have the capacity to be free, that we can act as though we are free. And yet there are all these things that are weighing us down and holding us back. He was constantly asking, what is it that keeps man, woman, that keeps us in chains? Um, and debt was one of those things. Work, again, was another one, which is why he uh, he focused on that later on. Um, and, you know, that t- took him down a very interesting path of looking at uh, the, the changing nature of class. One of the, the really fascinating threads that I think would have been fa- brilliant to see him draw out was this idea of the revolt of the caring classes. And what that means as we move into this kind of authoritarian capitalist nightmare uh, for hopefully not being too dystopian. But, you know, this... Um, this idea of debt is something that uh, that weighs people down, um, that prevents them from not just kind of uh, realizing a level of material freedom that will allow them to kind of, you know, do all the things that they need to do in life. But actually that um, constrains the way that we think that is this powerful, moralistic ideology that prevents us from even being able to imagine a world beyond capitalism, from even being able to imagine a world beyond neoliberalism. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, the whole, uh, that is, I think what, what, what the debt thing comes down to, um, it's not, it's not a question of saying that there is this inherent debtor creditor relationship and that that relationship is always characterized by the exploitation of the debtor by the creditor. I mean, David, you know, was far too intelligent to, to think that you can look today at the way in which, you know, big tech companies are being able to borrow at very, very low interest rates, huge, huge sums of money, and then using that debt to go up and buy bonds in other parts, of the, buy equities in other parts of the, the world's economy, or the way that, you know, wealthy people are able to take out mortgages to buy a second home that they can then rent out to other people. Debt, uh, the debtor-creditor relationship is not a class relationship. It's not something that's inherently characterized by exploitation, but is mediated by class and actually highlights the importance of that labor capital relationship, or if you want to put it in more populist terms, that kind of 1%, 99% um, relationship. And I think that was really the thing that interested David was the way in which debt, not just debtors and creditors, but actually debt for working people kept them down, kept us down, keeps us from being able to imagine a world beyond the one that we're currently living in. Well, I think one thing that's often forgotten in about David Graeber because his book about debt was so popular and so successful is he did write other fantastic books like Bullshit Jobs. And one of my favorite actually is about the bureaucracy, um, which mm. doesn't get a lot of attention. But right now, um, particularly as we're all dealing with COVID pandemic bureaucratic nightmares, um, has become incredibly relevant to a lot of our lives. I'm going to actually go straight to the questions now to get the audience in. And I'm going to actually emphasize questions that throw this forward in terms of thinking about what David's ideas mean for our current situation. And I'm going to start off with a question from Julia Linares, who says that before David died, we were working on a project to democratize money and its institutions in the form of a universal basic income that is issued by people. What, in your opinion, needs to happen for the creation of such a money commons to come about? How would you decommodify money? Any of you got any thoughts about that? I can see Grace is smiling. Grace, have you thought about this at all? Or Yanis? Yeah, this is this is something that David and I disagreed on slightly. Okay, Um, great. I mean, yeah, (laughs) David and I had a lot of really fun conversations about how we might unite um, post-Keynesian economic theorists and Marxist economic theorists. And if you were to pick an issue that you would be you know, least able to unite these two schools on, it would absolutely be the question of money. Um, so I'm not going to speak too much about the particular um, how, how I would understand what it would mean to kind of decommodify money, because it wouldn't align with a lot of what David would think about that. But when it comes to this question of, of universal basic income, the, the disagreement that, that David and I would, would have had on this was not one of substance. It was one of strategy and form. So for me, um, I was always much more in favor of this idea of kind of universal basic services, which would basically be that you would be um, removing uh, the basically the kind of money 
relationship from that transaction uh, that, you know, mediates the capacity of people to survive under capitalism. You know, you are as someone who is born into a world where you have to sell your labor power to survive, forced to earn money in order to buy the things that you need to exist. And in engaging in the money economy, you are subject to exploitation, to alienation, to all these various different forms of oppression. And you come to think about your your life, your value, the value of everything around you in monetary terms. The universal basic income, I think, for David, was a way of undercutting that. It was a way of saying, well, actually, if we give everyone money, then it loses this power that it holds over our lives. For me, I think an even more revolutionary thing to do would just be to kind of take money out of it entirely and to say everything that you need to live, all the things that, you know, the the means of subsistence should be free to you at the point of use. So, you know, we should collectively own uh, transport, um, you know, utilities, broadband, we should have a national food service, national care service, and all of these things, everything you need to survive, everything that you need to feel free and to flourish as a human being would be available to you free at the point of use. But again, I'm talking about what I think now. I think I will open it up to you guys to talk more about why David might have been, um, what well, was so, so in favor of this as what well, I think is definitely like an exciting and interesting project and something that if it was to happen, I certainly wouldn't kind of get in the way of. Owen, that, Yanis, do you have a view on UBI? And then Yanis, I'm going to ask you next about companies, democratization of companies. But Owen, Yanis, which of you wants to go first? Or the cat? We can ask the cat. Owen, you go. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I find this debate about, I mean, you know, universal basic services is something Certainly, I'm very sympathetic to as well. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not even you know, in, in Zurich they've just made uh, transport free, so it shows how uh, it's a concept which is already uh, emerging in in practice in in some in some various forms. I think the problem that people have with UBI was there were elements of the neoliberal right, like Milton Friedman, who pushed the idea of a negative income tax, which is essentially a form of UBI as a substitute or replacement for the welfare state. That was that, that was the danger as people saw it. I mean, there was the other problem with the universal basic income. I remember the Green Party had a bit of a mayor, frankly, in the 2015 election in Britain for various reasons. But one was their proposals for universal basic income when tested uh, and research was put into it, found that it would actually leave poorer people worse off, which clearly was not the point of the scheme at all. But more, more recently, an academic called Stuart Lansley who writes very extensively on issues of inequality, he actually put together a detailed report on universal basic income about how it could be phased in and made to work. And I think the point he was trying to make, which I'm very sympathetic to as well, is that sometimes the left, this has changed recently. I mean, I, I really do think we need to be clear that the left for a long time was very defensive and defined about what we were against rather than articulating co coherent vision of the society we want to build, and that has that has changed clearly over the last uh, few years quite dramatically, I'd say, thanks to the brilliant work, including of two of the people, obviously, who are on this panel. But Stuart Lansley makes the argument that actually on the welfare state, the left often is just simply arguing for a return to the welfare state as it existed before the cuts were implemented under David Cameron and George Osborne's Tories and their successors, rather than trying to imagine what a new welfare state could look like and how universal basic income could very much be a part of that. So I, I, I'm very sympathetic to a, to call me a triangulator, to a hybrid where you could have universal basic uh, services, whether it be broadband, housing, transport, those sorts of things, which are which are critical for citizens to be able to be, to engage and be fully uh, members, active citizens of the society in which they live, as well as providing them with an element of, of uh, you know a UBI that provides some form of freedom and, in, and and insurance as a matter of birthright. The other issue I know others worry from a trade union perspective that it badly interacts with how workers organise collectively to improve their pay within the workplace. I mean, I suppose my caveat there was a lot of trade unions originally opposed the minimum wage for similar reasons because they thought that interfered with collective bargaining so there's a similar argument used against ubi that's a long-winded way to say i'm very sympathetic towards it as workers obviously have become far more precarious right. and as technology the other point i mean look i'm not the non-economist here but traditionally new technology destroyed sorry created more jobs than destroyed the personal computer destroyed lots of jobs but created more jobs in their place and the danger is 
though I know people disagree on this or differ to the scale, that new technology will now destroy more jobs than it will create. And therefore, universal basic income could play a very important role in that context. Right. Well, Janis, do you have any views on UBI? And um, there's also a question also for you. I'll, I'll go on to I mean, do talk about UBI, but also um, Vince Roy would like to know what people think about your idea of democratic corporations where only workers own shares in the company and each is given only one share, one vote. Is that something that you think would be a good extension of David Graeber's ideas? I think the two go hand in hand. Uh, and even if the questions were not put to me in tandem, I would respond by Excellent. bringing these together. See, we are on the same page with the audience and with one another. Uh, the, look, the, my point is that we cannot democratize money on its own. Uh, when we leave the structure of capitalism, of what I call techno-feudalism, because we're not living in capitalism anymore, in my estimation, uh, we can't live the way things are and then democratize money. Uh, it's simply, it's a bit like saying that if we, sim we change the way we are measuring income and national product, then suddenly we're going to have a green society. It won't happen that way. Uh, on this issue, I'm completely with David, by the way, Grace, I have to tell you this. But <laughs> with one important caveat that may bring us closer together and with Owen's concerns uh, that you know, Milton Friedman was in favor of UBI, I am totally against the idea of a UBI that is funded through taxation. Because this is hugely divisive. If you go to a blue-collar worker in Doncaster or in the Midwest and you say to them that we're going to tax part of your salary, of your very hard-earned salary or wage, and we're going to give it to a layabout or to a rich person, you know, that's, that's a recipe for dividing the working class and, and, and turning them against the idea. But imagine, and here I'm coming to the second part of the question, Gillian, uh, uh, that we are democratizing corporations at the same time. And there are two ways of doing it. Uh, one is a very sort of gradualist way. Imagine that we were to say to Google, to Amazon, to any large corporation operating in our country, that if you want to add license to operate in our country, you're going to have to give a certain amount of shares uh, to a public equity fund. The dividends accumulate and those that are then divided amongst the population uh, as a universal basic dividend. And the idea is that the larger the percentage of the shares that go into this public equity fund, the greater the returns to capital that end up with everyone. On the basis of what? On the basis that, especially with modern technologies, every time you know you, you, you search something on your Google search engine, you're contributing to the capital stock of Google. Every time you upload a post in Facebook, you're contributing to the capital stock of Facebook. Uh, but you're not receiving any dividends. So, you know, if you think that Facebook pays out 1% of its revenues to its workers, right? 99% is produced, in a sense, to a large extent, by users. And they're not getting anything. So that's one, the, 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 the gradualist step. But imagine the, the, the following setup. One share, one member, one vote in corporations. You know, it sounds outrageous. But then so did, once upon a time, the idea of universal suffrage. The idea that one person, whether they own property, would read or write, would have the same the, the same vote or, and with the same weight as John Stuart Mill, was outrageous to people in the 19th century in Britain. <laughs> um, because if you do end up with corporations that are owned by the people who work in it on the basis of one share, one vote, then suddenly stock exchanges go away. Immediately, there is no point in the central bank, in the Bank of England, not or the Fed or the European Central Bank, not giving every one of us a digital bank account. And adding to that account a UBD, a UBI, just creating the money, just printing it in the way that they printed $9 trillion since the beginning of the pandemic, yeah? and effectively doing what you said Grace David wanted, you know, giving people an outside option, because the, the beauty of, of, of receiving money or receiving your dividend from society, a monetary dividend from society, is that you have alternatives. When you say yes to a contract that is being offered to you, you're saying yes by choice. You're not saying yes because you don't have a choice. And, you know, the greatest exploitation and the greatest lack of freedom comes from the fact that lots of people simply have no choice but to say yes, in which, in which case this is not voluntary and it's not a, it's not a free choice. Uh, so imagine if we had, you know, the ledger of the central bank, each one of us a row 
on this Excel, um, the central bank simply adds you know, a thousand pounds to each one of us. And then every time you buy a cup of coffee for someone or a bicycle or, you know, services or you buy a newspaper, you know, numbers migrate from one cell of the same Excel, <laughs> which is kept with the central bank to another. Uh, and you can adjust that. You have immediate effect on the money supply. One last point, if I may, because we need to move on to the next question. Look, as I'm speaking to you, I have this screen here in front of me and I'm using Chrome, you know, the internet interface. And that I just saw that and it reminded me of David. You see, David is everywhere. Now, why did Chrome remind me of David? Because of the first three letters of the word. Chrome comes from the Greek chroma, which means color. But David has also analyzed that this CHR are the beginnings etymologically of two words that are utterly linked. One is debt and the other is money in Greek. Chreos and chrima. Um, I felt I, need, I needed to say that because David was not only a brilliant uh, concept person, but also he was an anthropologist. He was um, an etymologist, somebody who sought truth in language in the way Societies experience stuff. And finally, you know, what was really mind-boggling to me was that he confirmed a hunch I had. And the hunch I had was that money did not emerge the way that economists say it. Hmm. But what he actually confirmed was that it never emerged, not once, not in one community anywhere in the world, in the way that the monetary economics textbooks tell us. And that is linked up to freedom from lack of options UBD, as I call it, the Universal Basic Dividend, uh, which combines debt, state debt with money, with a universal basic payment, with the democratization of corporations, with the end of stock exchanges, uh, which in the end would really free up even markets. Markets would be a lot freer under that um, um, regime that is consistent with David Graeber's work. Right. Well, that's fascinating. There's a lot of ideas there to unpack. Um, but it dovetails into something else. Another question that's come up from the audience a couple of times, which is to do with the role of digital currencies and how that changes these ideas. And I'm curious whether Grace or Owen have views on this. We have a question from Yuval asking, how do you propose non-state controlled currencies such as Bitcoin or NFTs change perceptions about what's money, property and debt? Grace, um, you look <laughs> overcome yeah. with emotion. <laughs> If David was here and he heard people talking about Bitcoin as something that was potentially kind of liberatory and emancipatory, he would he would not get angry at anyone because he never got angry at everyone. He would politely ask people questions as to why they thought that this was something that was going to uh, to liberate us from um, from capitalism. No, I mean, uh, Bitcoin and the euphoria around Bitcoin has as much to do with the anxieties of a dying ideology, which is liberalism, and combined with the um, just insane kind of monetary system that we have at the moment, which is, you know, which is being subjected to um, a set of policies that is unprecedented in the history of capitalism, which is that central banks are using their powers to create huge amounts of money which are being channeled into financial markets, which end up in the pockets of financiers. And those financiers are saying, what do we do with all this money? This then, you know, aligns with the pandemic situation in the sense that a lot of Americans, a lot of people, you know, in various different wealthy countries in the world suddenly find themselves with a lot of money. And the wealthy, the middle classes are all saying, what do we do with all this money? And Bitcoin came along at exactly the right time because it is one of those things that is um, associated with a very powerful libertarian ideology, which says that, you know, the reason that we are unfree is because the state is controlling the medium of exchange, which is the thing that is supposed to allow us to kind of come face to face with one another in markets and uh, truck and barter, as, as Yanis would have said, on, on free terms and the state's controlling it, the state's debasing the currency. Take that away and you have a free form of capitalism. Um, now, for those of us who are Marxists, we would see that as an oxymoron. But, you know, even if you don't, the idea that somehow having a form of currency which wasn't which isn't backed up by the state um, could you know create this kind of free form of capitalism is absurd. Not just because um, there is no money without states, but all of the reasons that David outlined in the book. And you know, if someone who asked the question hasn't read the book, 
please do go away and read it because it will tell you everything you need to know about why Bitcoin is a fallacy. But it's also not a currency. I mean, it's an asset. Um, it has a use, which is basically that it is broadly untraceable. So, you know, people who say it has no uses and therefore has no underlying value are wrong. You can use it to buy drugs on the dark web. And that is something that a lot of people do. So it does have a use, but it is not a currency. It's an asset. And the reason that it's gone up in value so much is because there's a huge amount of money flowing around the international financial system. It needs somewhere to go. It's going into Bitcoin. It's going into property. It's going into trainers. Um, you know, these tokens that um, Nike's making, uh, making NFTs associated with trainers so that we can trade their trainers without actually trading the physical trainer. So the, the crazy stuff we're seeing around Bitcoin is, is the, um, uh, the culmination of, of two very weird trends, one of which is the decay of liberalism, which is kind of associated with this weird fringe libertarianism. And the other is mass asset purchases by central banks. And it is not something that is going to free anyone. It is, if anything, going to mean that you're going to lose a lot of money. As one reply to Elon Musk that I saw uh, the other day saying, um, you told me to invest in Dogecoin and I lost £150,000. What the hell, man? So <laughs> I, that would be my view. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, well, Owen, what I'd like to do is, unless you've got a strong view about Bitcoin, I'd like to throw no. another question at you. We've got so many brilliant <laughs> questions. And this one, I think, is really good for you because um, Christoph Majewski says here in North America, which is where I normally live, um, just happen to be in the UK right now. A preoccupation with identity politics frequently dominates the conversation on the left. If David Graeber were here today, what advice would he have how to deal with this? And really what's, what the question here is, you know, is there a danger that the left in America, maybe the UK, has become so focused on identity politics, it's been at the expense of economic justice and other economic issues? Well, well, I don't actually want to ventriloquize on behalf of David Graeber there. But what I'd say is I think there's this very problematic conceptualization of the working class, which is often very, very reactionary, which the new right have very much seized upon, which is often, frankly, to portray one segment of the working class, which is often retirees, pensioners who often own their own homes, who are white, who are socially conservative, who may well hail from working class uh, backgrounds originally. But if you and I hate generational politics, it's very important I make that point. I mean, if you look in Britain, there are 1.9 million pensioners who live in poverty, which is amongst which is a significantly higher rate than much of, of the industrialized uh, nations. But you get, you know, this focus on that section. And there is a division. There's a generational division that has opened up without precedent. In 1983, Margaret Thatcher won a landslide, including amongst younger people. Uh, and what's ch and, and in, in the 1980s, all younger people were the most likely uh, were the most likely to to support Ronald Reagan. And in 1968, the most pro-Vietnam War generation were the were the young, the most hostile were, were older Americans. So generation that generational divide that has opened up today, more younger people support Labour than ever before, or did in 2017, 2019. And in the US, you saw Bernie Sanders uh, won a decisive majority in primaries amongst younger people. What's happened there? Older people, as I've said, tend to own their own homes. Home ownership's gone up. Uh, quantitative easing has pushed up their house prices. Uh, and they tend to be more socially conservative on issues like immigration, multiculturalism, Islam, feminism, LGBTQ rights. And younger people have suffered a terrible squeeze in their living standards. They're saddled with debt if they go to university, but also personal debt. Uh, they're in precarious work and they tend to be socially progressive. 
Now, the, the point I say about the working class is, you know, an older person who's white and is socially conservative and straight is a valid part of the working class. But the working class is not just that. The working class includes people, as the working class has always been a diverse uh, rainbow, it includes people born in a certain country or who originate from elsewhere. It includes a black supermarket worker in Hackney, and it includes a white retired steel worker in the Midlands. It includes someone who is gay or trans. Uh, it includes people who own their own homes or are private renters. Um, it includes people, you know, you know, this whole complexity of the working class is very important. And, I, you know, the point I'll just quickly say is we know this intersection is common sense. Uh, you know, if you're working class, you suffer oppression, exploitation based on your class. But if you're a woman, you're more likely to be concentrated in the lowest paid and most precarious jobs and have to do unpaid labor uh, disproportionately at home. If you're a gay worker, you might be on minimum wage in a supermarket, but you might also suffer homophobic uh, intimidation when you walk down the street or you can't even hold hands you know, with your partner. You may suffer discrimination from, uh, you know, a, 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 from, from landlords. If you're black, you're far more likely to be poor or unemployed. These are all issues which intersect with class. They can't be divorced from class. They can't be separated from class. The working class is a diverse rainbow and a diverse spectrum. And there is no, you know, the whole point of being on the left is to fight for the liberation of all from all forms of oppression, exploitation, bigotry and racism. That's what always what David Graeber consistently right. argued for. You can't strip away this idea of identity politics, which is just a means to say which minority you're going to throw into which bus. Uh, uh, based on some reductionist notion of the working class is offensive, anti-working class. And, uh, you know, everything I ever saw and, and, and heard from David Gabriel very much did not have this one dimensional view of a white working class, socially conservative uh, who, who, spent, who spends their time, you know, obsessing with which minority to throw under which boss. Well, that's well put. Um, Sorry. We have some questions. We could have another five hour session, I think, just getting through them. Interestingly enough, a lot of them about the issue of UBI or variants of UBI, universal services and stuff. So that clearly is striking a chord. But there's another um, bunch of questions which are also talking about um, issues very much at the moment. But I'm going to pick up some of them, a different one. Um, maybe one for you, Yanis, from Greg Watson. What would David have felt about the changing post-COVID dynamics between China, the US and the EU? What advice would he have given to Joe Biden? It's really very difficult for me to project from his books on debt and bullshit jobs to, to this. So allow me to assume that we would be on the same page, and I'll tell you what I think, <laughs> if I may. Yeah. <laughs> you. This is the best I can do. Um, an economist, there, there are not that many economists that I hold in high regard um, today who are still alive, Gillian. Uh, but Michael Pettis, who teaches and works in China, is one of them. His recent book, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, is a classic. Uh, it deserves to be on the same shelf as debt. And I think that Michael Pettis has the answer to this particular question. And I do not want to bore everyone with uh, a long-winded argument. But the great fallacy that uh, those in authority in the United States and in Europe especially in places like Germany and France today, uh, they are peddling a fallacy. And the fallacy is that the working class of the West, of the North Atlantic West, has been uh, uh, effectively pushed into misery by the rising Chinese working class and the fact that China is uh, squeezing its own labor in order to improve the lot of the Chinese working class vis-a-vis -vis the West. This is not what is happening. What is happening is a simultaneous class war, both in China and in the United States or the West. In China, the class war takes the form of very high investment rates, a lot of money being created through the credit mechanisms, especially the shadow banking system, to propel huge rates of investment, which um, create a dynamic. But nevertheless, this dynamic is predicated upon a tiny percentage of the pie going to the working class in China. And the fact that it's you know, Apple and American companies, corporations producing in China and exporting to, to the United States, when American public debt is being purchased by Chinese capitalists, 
creates the circumstances for the great squeeze of the wages of the American working class. So there are two working classes, the Chinese and the American working classes, who are consistently being shortchanged by their regimes, the Chinese regime and the American regime, the Western regime. I think that would come close to what David would have to say. So don't think of this as a trade war, as a cold war, as a clash between China and America. This is an establishment in the United States and in China that is doing really very well by squeezing the living daylights, using debt also as an instrument of the working class, both in China and in the United States. Can I very briefly come in on this, Gillian? Yeah, absolutely. I just and think... I want to climate next, but yeah, go on, Grace. Sure. I just think there's one really clear lesson that, that we have here, which is that, you know, there is a tradition against which David was was militantly opposed, which is to say that once you have um, state ownership over the commanding heights of the economy, then you will have a transition towards a different kind of system, one that will no longer be called capitalism. And the experience of China, which is the epitome of this kind of authoritarian uh, statist capitalist system, which is characterized by huge amounts of not just oppression and alienation, but exploitation of the kind that exists within capitalism, uh, because it is still a system that is based around commodities production, shows that that is not true. That actually today, as we move into this new world, this world characterized by high levels of state intervention in the economy, where the EU is looking to China and saying, right, well, maybe we should ease off on some of this competition regulation. Maybe we should try and have our own kind of, you know, big monopolistic corporations. The um, capitalism is not a system that is defined by the presence or absence of free markets. It is a system that is defined by the domination of labor by capital, of the domination of the many by the few. Um, and that the route out of that is not just to have a state own all the stuff, it is to democratize every area of the economy and society. Which is where digital technology becomes so potentially exciting, but also potentially scary. It can be used either way and it sort of, you know, amps up everything in either direction, potentially. Mm -hmm. But um, we haven't got a lot of time left. But I do want to come to one question again, for taking David's ideas and throwing them forward a bit and say um, from Tanya Jones. Very interesting question. Maybe for you, Grace, first, which is, does the concept of climate debt bear any relation to debt as, a, as analyzed by David Graeber? And is it the best word to represent that type of global moral obligation? So I think what they're referring to now is the idea that there's a, a kind of debt relationship between generations um, whereby, you know, the, the polluters and we today have a, a kind of debt towards those who, who come after us. Yeah, I mean, that is that is certainly true. Personally, I think there's another interesting way that you could use this, which is to think about this idea of the kind of carbon bubble. That the way in which that the way that we run the economy today is premised upon the idea that we'll be able to continuously exploit the deposits of uh, fossil fuels that we have today um, and that economic growth will continue on the basis that we have it at the moment. And therefore, Exxon, um, Shell, all of these big corporations are valued on the basis that that is going to continue, whereas actually that's impossible. Um, so there's a, a you know, a, a carbon bubble there, um, which you can think about as a certain as a, a kind of form of, of debt in the sense that, um, you know, uh, there is this um, this chain that needs to be broken for that those assets, uh, many of which are debt, to be revalued and, and to take into account um, the, the structural and environmental and economic trends that we're seeing take place today. But in terms of this kind of intergenerational debt, there is a way of thinking about this in moralistic terms, and it's it's a tempting way to think about it. David was a a moral person. He was a person who thought about a lot about morality. But I don't think he did the thing that a lot of people who analyze capitalism and say, oh, it's a bit bad, we should change X and Y and Z do, which is to speak about change in moralistic terms, so which is just to say, you know, capitalism is bad because it subverts these moral maxims that we have. He actually looked at many of those moral maxims, one of which is you always have to repay your debts and said, these are socially constructed. And morality is socially constructed and we need to kind of look beyond that. I think one of the things that David was always focused on and the thing that he spent most of his life doing was building power, building power in our movements, in our classes, in our communities, bringing people together to understand the world in order to change it. And that is, I think, where we're going to get if we get any movement on climate, that's where we'll get movement from. It's not by convincing people using moralistic language you need to wear hair shirts and recycle and, you know, do X and Y and Z. 
because you have this debt to your you know future children it's actually we as a community as a society as a planet have responsibilities to one another to ourselves um and by coming together working together talking our problems through yeah like figuring out a new way of understanding the world and fighting to build it that's how things will change um and yeah. i don't think i don't want to ventriloquize again for david but i think that's how he would have responded to that well, I'm just curious. We're getting close to being out of time, but I'm curious. I'd like to chuck a question at Yana. It's a very smart question from Anna, which reflects something, a theme that's come up in a lot of the conversations about the fact that due to COVID, the amount of money pumped into the economies means there's now incredible amounts of national debt. Another questioner pointed out we're now at record levels by a factor of several times compared to what, what we had pre-2008. Do you, Yanis, or either of you, Grace and Owen, have any hope that the sheer magnitude of debt that the world's now drowning in is going to spark enough of a crisis or enough of a realisation about the need for a reset, a jubilee, a write-off, some form of proper debt forgiveness. Um, because, you know, it's not even happening in the low-income countries right now. But do any of you have any hope that the mountain of debt we're now facing? I mean, Yanis, you look at these figures a lot um, across the European Union it's going to be big enough to force some kind of resolution. Are you optimistic? No, nope. not in the slightest. They love it because the more debt there is, the more Italy is indebted, the more Greece is indebted, the more power the authorities have over the government in Italy, over the government in Greece. What they will do is not the Jubilee unless we force them, unless we have a social movement, unless we elect governments that demand it and they are prepared to act upon their demands. If, if that doesn't happen, what the system will do is will keep rolling over the debts. Uh, they will keep increasing, of course, because of compounded interest. Uh, and that will become even more of, of unequal power, as Grace said. The whole point about maintaining debt and not cutting it, uh, even when it is unpayable, is uh, to, to, to maintain the, the, this power. Remember, the European Union is not a federation. We do not have a political union. We cannot resolve issues on the basis of democracy. When prime ministers and presidents and finance ministers you know, meet around the table, there is no serious discussion at all. They can't be, simply because there is no mechanism by which to make a decision that, for instance, the United States could make uh, or the United Kingdom could make at the moment. Uh, for instance, you know, during the pandemic, the Bank of England was, was buying first-hand uh, bonds issued by the Treasury. You know, the, the Europeans cannot do that. So instead, what they will do is they will keep rolling them over, rolling them over, refinancing, and using the enhanced power that the very few get from the burgeoning debt in order to um, decide who goes broke and who doesn't. Because insolvency, Gillian, is a political issue. And this is another thing that comes out of the book of debt. It, it's a political decision. I mean, why are we not talking about, I mean, not me or maybe you, but why, why is Greece not in the first page of the Financial Times these days? We are more bankrupt than we were five years ago, far more bankrupt than we were five mm. years ago. You know, our GDP has gone down, our debt has gone up, but we're not talking about it. Why? Because the powers that be decided that um, we're not bankrupt. We, they will keep rolling over our debt as long as we do as they're told and, you know, keep, um, you know, foreclosing on people and selling their homes and giving them to vulture funds that go to take the money to Luxembourg. It's all about power. It's exactly as Grace said. Well, sadly, it's also about time. And very, very sadly, we actually are bang out of time right now. But I think that's a very powerful note to end on and shows exactly why David's work is as relevant today as it was when he first wrote it. In some ways, frankly, it's even more relevant. I want to salute you, Yanis, for all you're doing to really try and put some of these ideas into practice. I'd like to salute both of you, uh, both Owen and Grace, for all the powerful work you're doing writing and in your activism to try and put these points across. Um, I should say that I'm personally delighted to have had a chance to chair this event tonight because um, about 18 months ago, I sat down and started writing a book about why I thought the world of finance, business and politics need to know a lot more about anthropology um, because I am trained as an anthropologist. Um, I draw draw heavily in this book um, on David Graeber's work, not just the debt work, but also the bullshit um, jobs, which I think is actually in some ways one of his best books. And was very much looking forward when I finally finished most of the book last summer, very much looking forward to having a chance to talk to him, to show passages to him 
I thought she probably wouldn't approve of parts of it because I do work at the Financial Times. Um, but I wanted to exchange some ideas with him. Sadly, I never got the chance. But as Nika said earlier, there are going to be a series of events coming up where people will have a chance to really think about the ideas, exchange views and celebrate what has been a truly fantastic contribution that, frankly, we should all honour. So thank you, all of you, for taking part. Thank you, Nika, for your very powerful words. And I think we should all go away now and reread debt the first 5,000 years and hope it won't be debt the next next 5,000 years. So thank you all very much indeed. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.